welcome back to the Rod Ben and Bashers podcast. Um, I am your host, uh, Greg. You can find me at Greg Lord Outdoors on Instagram. Here with co-host and fellow bastard, Nick. Uh, you can find him at meet with a A underscore my underscore fish on the old IG. And uh, we are here for, I think this is like episode eight or nine, maybe eight. Um, eight, eight-ish. Yeah, episode eight. And episode number one for the new year so that's kind of cool um it's going to be a good one we have a really awesome guest it was one of the uh first guys i thought of whenever decided to kind of go into this venture for making a podcast and everything but uh before we introduce him nick how was your uh how's your new year's it was good it was filled with joy and booze yeah i guess that's what you could hope for yeah, that's always a always a good thing. I, and yours. Uh, so I went back to work. Uh, we we made fun of me for that About on the last episode. Time. About yeah. time. Yeah. So um, it was uh, it was a very normal uh, expectation for coming back to work. I from like Sunday morning until last night, I slept about eight hours and two and a half days. So it was a good welcome back to uh, the world of organ donation. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was all right though. Um, but we have not done any fishing. The streams blew out up in Erie. Uh, I had some buddies that went up the other day and pretty much I'm, everywhere in this area, they're blown out. Far yeah. As I can tell. Yeah, I was uh, riding around today and went over like Thorn Creek and Thorn Creek's ripping pretty good and stuff. But um, it'll hopefully hopefully calm down. And I think the rain's supposed to stop tomorrow morning. And then uh, I think we're going to plan on making a run up there on Sunday. So going to hope that we get into some fish up there from the reports I've seen on the Facebook pages. Some guys had some really good days on uh, on Monday, I believe. So we'll uh, hopefully continue continue that luck here come this weekend but that's really about all for a little recap for us um we're gonna get into this and as i said one of the first guys i thought of whenever we we started talking about doing a podcast um we would like to introduce tonight uh he's actually doing his own new venture that just started as well um, and we're going to dive into that here pretty good. But tonight we have Ralph Scherter from Dark Skies Fly Fishing. How's it going, buddy? Good, man. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm glad to finally be, uh, be talking to you guys. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a little bit of a progress uh, or a little bit of, a, I guess, progress on your end. You had some stuff going on um, and just wanted to get all of your things squared away before you jumped on here. So that way you could, you know, fully talk about all of it, which I'm really excited about. And we are in the, you know, we're out of bass season right now. Fly fishing is definitely on the forefront of uh, Nick and I's minds whenever we're looking at doing any type of fishing right now, because we have never been out on hard water, which there's really no hard water right now anyway. Um, so yeah, it's awesome that we uh, finally were able to make this all happen and get you on here. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Cool. So Nick, this is a first guest for a couple weeks. I'll let you uh, lead things off with it. Oh, I don't even remember what I'm supposed to ask. Come oh, on, oh you, yeah, the, the same your, question. It's your it's question. Been, the it's same been one. a while. It's been a while. 
<laughs> Ralph, here's our here's our tongue and cheek question we ask everybody. I I totally forgot about it because one we had a break, and then two we didn't have a guest last time, so it's been a solid like three weeks since I've had to think about this. <laughs> um, but why do you suck at fishing, Ralph Scherter? Why do you suck at fishing? <laughs> well, I suck at fishing because I am so damn impatient. <laughs> because as soon as I get my line in the water, I want to catch fish. And sometimes that hurts me because I don't take the time to figure out um, exactly what they're taking. And uh, I always look for that golden pool where the fish are basically jumping out of the water onto my fly uh, saying, you know, take me. I want I want to be landed. So, yes, that's why I suck. You and me both, buddy. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> is. It is. It definitely seems like being impatient is uh, is something that's a common thread amongst everyone that we've had thus far. Uh, and I do agree with you that, you know, I've tried to get better. Um, I think actually, Ralph, you and I, I believe, have had like some Facebook messages back and forth about this in regards to, you know, how often you switch flies and things like that to where, you know, it's like, oh, man, like I drifted that perfect through there and nothing hit. Should I just change? But it's like, no, like you got to give it a little bit of time. Like you got to, you know, work that, you know, work that stream across and like maybe hit a little bit of a different run and everything. So yeah, impatience is a, uh, it seems to be a very common problem amongst the, uh, the anglers we've had on thus far. Well, because it's always hard to know whether you're doing something wrong or if the fish just aren't hitting, you know? And sometimes it can be the conditions of the place for your the actual location, the pool that you're fishing or the run. And you might move up the stream or down the stream and find a little bit different conditions where the fish are taking your presentation. So, you know, I think the key is just like trying to recognize when it's you and when it's the fish. And but more often than not, it's you. <laughs> yeah. I always assume it's me regardless. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think so too. It's, it's, at that point now for me, especially for steelhead, where even though I'm only in, you know, year two of fishing for them, the confidence is there where it's like, I know if there are fish in this run, I'm going to be able to catch them. And if I'm not catching anything, it's the fish like I, but there definitely are times where, you know, I will sit and watch a buddy of mine stand beside me and throw the exact same everything and catch fish after fish. And I sit there with my thumb up my butt wondering what the hell's going on. Or I just turn into like, you know, the, uh, the all day net man, because that's all I'm good for that day. Apparently. <laughs> I've been, you're a great net man, Greg. Don't sell yourself short there. I, Hey, I am very good at it. We it's have a your, buddy that's your special talent. We have a buddy that is not very good at it. Um, but no, I, I feel like I am a, I'm a good net man. I know, I know how to land those uh, fish for everyone. So we we did forget one thing uh starting off the episode uh nick what are you what are you drinking tonight the old ranch waters hey same same here buddy same here you're on the bullshit welcome i'm 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 on it uh ralph did you find yourself a beverage you said you were gonna try to scour your house for one uh you know all i have was some skunky old beer in there that i haven't touched in a long time so i'm just digging the coffee tonight uh, I have a lot to get done this evening, and you know I didn't want to get too uh, too far into the long necks to 
<laughs> then I wasn't able to get stuff done. So you know what goes great in that coffee is a little bit of whiskey. Oh yeah, or, uh, yeah, or some Bailey's, or you know, I, I'm yeah. more of a, I'm more of a liquor person. Like you know, I, I don't really drink a lot of the beers. Like if we go to a brewery or something, yeah, I love the occasional beer. But um, you know, I love the uh, the Kahluas, the the rums, you know, stuff like that. Sure, that's my, my there. You go. Yeah. So uh, real quick, Nick, uh, you probably should have came up here instead of wing night. Those those Sammies I made were banging. I Ralph, I made some. Uh, it was a backstrap from. It was actually left over from last year. I found it in the freezer. I like thin sliced it. Did uh, steak sandwiches with caramelized onions, and I made like a horseradish mayo to put on top of it. Threw it in the broiler, broiled the cheese on top of it. Oh, straight uh, money, straight well, money. When you tell a guy when he's got a plate full of wings already sitting in front of him, that's the wrong time <laughs> to tell him. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, but enough about the boring alcohol and food stuff. Let's let's get into the the fun stuff here. So. Ralph, you you have been obviously, I'm assuming, a longtime fly fisherman, um, or even just angler in general. Have you, you know, has it always been fly, or did you? How did you? Basically, what is your fishing story from now and moving backwards, or early on to where we are now? Uh, you know, I really started out like everybody else with fishing. You know want panfish, lake fish, bass, stuff like that. But um, I, a little different, I kind of cut my teeth musky fishing. Uh, casting plugs. My family used to go to Canada a lot for several weeks a summer, multiple times per summer. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in a boat casting plugs and uh, trolling. Caught my first musky when I was eight. Uh, Jeez. 45-inch or 24-pound right around there. So, you know, I from very early on, I just I, I love fishing. And uh, I really got into the fly fishing when I was probably about 14 or so and uh, just kind of escalated from there. Um, I wasn't really like a dedicated fly fishing only kind of guy. Uh, I used a lot of spinners and bait and really it was, you know, whatever they were hitting, I was using. But once I got into mid-20s, early 20s, I just thought I wanted to really just master fly fishing or I don't know if master is the right word, but just learn as much as I could about it and how to be more efficient uh, with a fly rod. And, uh, you know, so I put away my spinning rod somewhat forever. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the only time I really used it is uh, for, for occasional musky fishing trip. But, um, but, yeah, I just I love love fly fishing and everything about it. And uh, I started tying flies when I was right around 14 as well. Oh, geez. And I had uh, two local sporting goods stores that were actually selling my flies when I was only like 15, 16 years old. So I was supplying two two sporting goods stores, and that's how kind of how I earned some extra money when I was a teenager. Um, kind of, you know, here I am, twenty five years later, still doing the same stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a uh, it was something I knew very early on that I loved, and it has been a lifelong passion. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's it, cool. It definitely seems like 
that is maybe somewhat of the normal transition for guys that are, you know, like I'm not a fully dedicated fly fisherman. Like I, you know, Nick and I are huge bass fishermen whenever the season hits. And we've, you know, talked about it before where Pennsylvania is just perfect for us because we can have April until October of bass fishing and then occasionally getting out for some trout fishing here and there. And then come November through March, we're able to be out in the streams with a fly rod on our hand, whether it's going for, you know, trout or steelhead and everything. So, um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. But the, the normal transition, oh, I don't want to say the normal, but it definitely feels like there is a, um, for a lot of guys that get into fly fishing, they do come from a spin background or, you know, ultra light stuff for just fishing for trout and they decide to they want to you know roll into the world of fly fishing which is pretty much how i started which i've been doing it now for uh 10 maybe 11 between 10 and 11 years i think and i that's i i grew up fishing same thing i was fishing for trout using rooster tails or you know bouncing shrimp eggs or wax worms on the bottom for stocked trout in the streams and just decided that i was like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna give this fly fishing a a go and um i there was a point in time it was probably like four years ago they stocked thorn creek which is a local stream to where I live. And I, I was like, Hey, you know what? I'm just going to go for a little like stroll down the stream. I almost forgot how to throw a spinning reel with a rooster tail. Like I, I went to cast it a couple of times. I was just like, what the hell am I doing? Like it, it took me a good, like five, 10 minutes to like get back in the flow of like how I'm supposed to throw this and work a work a lure and everything. And now, I mean, it would just be second nature because I do so much bass fishing with stuff, but um, yeah, it's, that definitely does seem like a, the norm of you just decide to jump into the fly fishing world. And next thing you know, you really don't look back at all. So true. Yeah. And the, you know, now I, I still love uh, the, the bass fishing and all the lake fishing, but I like trying to catch those fish with the fly instead of the, you know, traditional bass gear. Yeah. yeah. We go ahead. I was going to say, we haven't got into that too much. Um, no. I fish a lot of grass Ralph, and I think, Greg, you do too, to a certain extent, but you do other things. That's kind of my go-to. And when you're fishing cover like that, it's – I'm, I'm about, like, the right tool for the right job. And sometimes having just a heavier baitcaster, being able to rip stuff through grass more weedless mm-hmm. is an advantage because I like catching fish, bar none. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but then again, if I'm going out for trout, I, I never take a, a spinning rod, you know, so – I don't know where the line is for me. It's somewhere, but uh, it's it's kind of convoluted, a little gray area of where that is. Because, yeah, there's probably times I could get out there with even my, you know, it's called BFS, which is like super ultralight casting setup. Um, it was kind of designed in Japan for trout, but I choose not to do that for trout and streams. Yeah, so it's... It's it's a different scenario, but I think it's just where the the areas of fishing is where we decipher. This is the rod I'm going to take. Although I, I've kind of thought about trying to 
rip some streamers for bass, but I think it'd have to be a little more open water because I'd probably just kick and scream and cuss if I just got hung up in grass like every 30 seconds. Yeah, it it definitely would be fun to if you had, you know, uh, if you just had like a little like three weight or something like a smaller length three weight rod and just carry that around with you in your kayak somewhere and say like you're not having a great day bass fishing, you know, there are plenty of places, especially out of Keystone, which is what Nick and I consider our home lake, that we could get into some like little coves and stuff and probably just crush little like seven inch bass or some big bluegill or something, just throwing little, you know, little caddises or something like that on the top. Yeah, you could definitely do dry fly stuff or things like that and skitter them around and, and catch stuff. But the, yeah. the big the big boys in the deep cover where you need to get it in there would be a little more difficult i oh, would think you know oh, for sure um so we ralph and i have had a conversation for a while about him coming on and he you know decided to i guess to say for lack of a term i mean you completely rebranded yourself um and I want to kind of, you know, dive into that because I think, I don't know if it's been two years, Ralph, but it, I know it's been closer to two than over two, probably that I've been buying stuff off of you, um, for trout and for steelhead, uh, and you tie some very, very good things that honestly, uh, maybe other than some zonkers that I picked up this year, um, from, you know, a couple other shops and stuff. I truly think that I have caught the majority of my steelhead over the past two years on flies that you have tied. Um, and it's awesome because, you know, you, well, you were local to me, uh, then, you know, my, as I like to tell my buddies, my quote unquote fly dealer, uh, decided to pack up and move so now I actually have to order stuff from you, but what, you know, I guess let's ultimately, let's just, you know, kind of dive right into that. You know, what prompted you to move from what you were and rebranding yourself as, as dark skies? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, well, you know, we moved to Potter County from, from Butler, uh, back in about a year ago now. And, uh, I've had a camp up here since 2010 I believe but my family's been coming up to Potter County for decades and it was just always one of those places that spoke to my soul you know and if it, if I wanted to hunt or fish anywhere I wanted to go to Potter County so I was spending so much time up here at camp <laughs> one day we're like you know my wife was like we should just move to Potter County I was like okay I'm in and uh and she uh she got a job doing the same thing up here that that she did in, in around Butler County there and um it has been really a, a seamless transition but uh up here what they call Potter County or one of the names of course is God's Country but one of the other names is Dark Skies Country um, and they say that because of the stars, there's, this is a huge stargazing area. Um, really? <clears throat> it is one of the darkest skies east of the Mississippi. And a lot of that is because the Potter County itself is so, uh, sparsely populated. 
So there's not a lot of light pollution. There's no big towns. Um, Cowdersport is the biggest town. And, you know, if you look at Potter County in general as a whole, the population is probably still less than the city of Butler. Like, I just had to look up where Potter County was. Yeah, North <laughs> I'm looking at Google Maps right now. I was like, where the hell is that? Yeah. And I also figured something else out. You know, for our listeners, before we got online and started recording, we were trying to get the audio lined up and make sure everything sounded okay. And I'm figuring it out is in Potter County, you probably have awful internet. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes that's true. It, uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of options up here. You know, it's a different right. life. It's I, I always think of it, it's, it's just a slower paced life. There's not as many sure. restrictions like uh, there's no big, you know, box stores. Uh, the closest Walmart's, you know, an hour and a half to two hours away. Like it's it's great. You know, because really you get the focus on the important stuff, which is like the family, the outdoors, the things you love to do. And, um, you know, the the whole dark skies thing, you know, like there's Cherry Springs State Park only a few miles down the road from where I live. And uh, it is a certified uh, dark sky park. And people come from like all over the, the country to, to look at the stars through telescopes here and they, they image constellations and, and various stars. And, um, you know, we live at the top of one of the highest points in, in the county and like you just, you've never seen the sky like this, you know, or you just, you can't possibly imagine how many stars are there. And like the Big Dipper looks like close enough to touch. and But just that whole idea of of wonder and amazement and like looking at things fresh and uh, dark skies and kind of mysterious, but, and it, it just, that name just always kind of spoke to me. And um, when I was looking to kind of take my website to the next level, I thought my first name Keystone Flyfisher was a little bit generic and it didn't really do well when people would search that um on on google or whatever so i thought you know i really wanted a a unique name and and that one never really spoke to me so i thought i kicked it around for a little while and i was dark skies fly fishing and you know kind of tested out a few people and they were like yeah yeah we like that and um so i ran with it and uh i'm glad i did the feedback has been tremendous i think it's it's more unique now um it kind of sums up uh my my mission statement in a way better it uh just kind of describes better what the blog is all about what my website is all about yeah that's that's what's kind of cool about stuff with um so uh ralph isn't only just a a a tire like a fly tying guy and you can buy stuff from him and he has a ridiculous assortment of things that you can get off of them. Um, and they're also very, very good quality. Again, like I said, I've caught numerous stillhead on, on stuff I've bought from him. Um, he, you also have a ton of blogs on your site that are always, you know, nice little reads of different things that you have talked about. Like I saw your one the other day that was picking the right reel for what you're, you know, trying to do uh i think there was another one that you posted that was um talking about like breaking down water and you know sections of water and where to hit and everything um in addition to 
you also have some books that you've put together, have you not? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I've done uh, Well, I've been I've been a writer my whole life, like ever since I was a wee kid. You know, I knew I wanted to be a writer and uh, I sold my first national uh, sales, national publications when I was still in high school. And after high school, it just kind of grew year by year. And I got to the point where I was, you know, publishing a hundred or more articles in magazines every year. And I had four or five columns that I was doing every month. And, uh, you know, the past six years, that's what I was doing a lot of. And uh, so writing has always been, you know, part of my who I am and what I enjoy the most. I love just you know, being able to detail those stories and, and go out and have an adventure and write about it and share it with people. And, um, you know, thanks for reading them. I, every time someone reads them and says they enjoy it, that's just, that's just more fuel to my fire, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, like I said, they're, they're nice little reads because the, the blog style, I mean, understand that I know blog styles are usually like, you know, shorter, shorter clips at reading and stuff, but even just in those like short little clips, like it offers a lot of really good, you know, little nit, you know, nit areas, or I want to say like nitpicking, that's the wrong word to use there, but like just these little like blips of nice info that, you know, I kind of just store in the back of my mind. And the next time I go out, especially if it's talking about like breaking down water, it's like, oh, I remember reading this. Like I should, you know, I need to throw through here a few times everything and and see see where it, you know, if there's anything in here or not. Right. Yeah, I, I like doing those ones a lot. Um where we're breaking down the water and reading the water. I I really had my opinion changed on a lot of things. I went with some biologists to survey streams a few times uh, several years ago. And just watching them do their electrofishing and where they found trout and, you know, where those trout like to hold, it just, it opens up your mind to how many possibilities there are. Like, you know, most people are going to walk to a pool and just hit the best looking water. And if they don't get, get one out of that seam or that little, you know, back eddy or whatever, they're like, oh, okay, there's nothing in here. But, you know, there's really a lot to a pool. And I always think there's probably more fish present than most fishermen realize and uh i think that's where you know i try to break those that down and kind of share where i've found stuff and where i've seen uh, biologists pull fish you know it, it's amazing where they get them so i do i have two things uh one of them is piggybacking off of what you just said in that i have went up to erie last year with my buddy and this was probably like the second or third time I've been still head fishing with him. And we went to an area of a stream and he stopped and he's like unpacking. I was like, what are you doing? It's like, we're going to, we're going to fish right here. Like, dude, that I can literally like, I have no idea what you're looking at. And out of the smallest little spot that would have been so inconspicuous to anyone else, probably unless you are seasoned or really, really know the stream. We caught like seven fish out of this tiny ass little hole where you just would have never even thought of putting a drift down through there. And it would just, I think that really has opened me like open things up for me, you know, on the fly fishing side, but also, um, 
and going bass fishing, like I wet wade the conequinescing all the time in the summer and go for smallmouth. It's one of my favorite things to do um, through the summertime. And, you know, I will take that and look at areas where it's like, you know, cause there's obviously bigger holes and like longer stretches of calm, you know, slack water and everything, but it's like, yeah, that's, that's there are fish there, but that's not where I want to fish. Like I want to throw a buzz bait or a whopper plopper across the top of these riffles because I know there's going to be a big small mouth just like lurking on those edges waiting for something to like stroll by and it's going to come up and smash it. And I have caught numerous smallmouth doing exactly that like not fishing in the bigger deeper areas like just hitting those little you know nitpicking the stream there i can use that word now uh and just looking at the little areas where it's like all right i want to i want to try to throw this here and yeah it works the other thing i want to ask you about and i've heard this before explain the electro fishing or whatever the surveys or surveyors are doing, because I know of like, I've heard uh, a biologist on a couple other podcasts. Um, he's been on like two podcasts I listened to and somewhat talking about it, but like, I'm actually kind of fascinated in what they do for that. Like the electro fishing. Okay. Um, well, basically they, there's a couple guys that will walk up the stream and there's a guy trailing behind them and the guys, there are two, they walk side by side, uh, they have the electro pull, basically. They have backpacks that admit the charges. Uh, they just shock the water. They reach the, the probe, basically, into any water that look, you know, everywhere they see. Every little pocket, every everything that looks like nothing, you know. Even if it's just a couple inches of water. I, I've seen them just walk up streams where the water was barely over their ankles and pull out, you know, decent fish. So, but yeah, as they're doing that, the fish that turn belly up, they scoop them up, they hand them back to the person behind them who, you know, measures them, uh, documents them, you know, and then that person drops them back into the water. And within, you know, a few seconds, that fish is revived again and swimming. So really? it Okay. I thought maybe it killed them. So <laughs> no, not at all. It, it, it just stuns them, uh, for, for a very brief time and, uh, they revive pretty quickly after they're back in the water. So, and a lot of times too, they'll, they'll, what they'll do is they'll, they'll clip a tail fin, uh, just like a, a sliver, a hair. You wouldn't even notice it if you were, unless you were really, really looking for it. But because a lot of times they'll, they'll survey streams twice. Uh, ones that they're looking to uh, classify perhaps a, a new stream classified as a class A or a class B stream. Uh, they'll go through the first time and they'll, they'll clip a tail fin, and then that way when they come back and go through the second time, they'll know whether they're capturing the same fish or new fish. And then, uh, you know, they, they go back and look at all their charts, and they kind of figure out the, the pounds per hectare or whatever it's called, and kilograms per hectare of water, and whether it meets the Class A requirements. But, you know, going back to what you were saying about fishing the conical nesting and stuff, and why you find the the trout in no shallow or the bass in no shallow waters is I think, you know, a lot of times that that's where they're feeding, you know, you, you'll find a lot of fish in the deep pools, but that's kind of where they're resting. And that's where they're going to digest their food, you know, after they fed. Uh, and, and 
all the cases watching the biologist, the biggest trout were always coming out of the skinniest water. And all it took was some sort of uh, structure, a little rock, an undercut bank, uh, a little seam of, of current that was maybe just, you know, where there was a little pocket of water that was barely over their backs. Um, you know, and, and you might, we might go upstream 10 yards or 10 feet where there was a, a nice big pool that was maybe two or three feet deep with a big undercut bank. And you would think like, yeah, this is where we're going to pull out the hog. Right. And uh, a lot of times they wouldn't pull out anything. You know, they might pull out one small one. And you would think like, why, why are those big fish down in that skinny water and there's nothing in this big pool? And that's because they're down there feeding, you know, and they'll travel up and down the stream uh, more than most people realize. Like there was one stream, they, they were really excited to come back and, and electroshock because the one year in, what, what do they, do? they usually do it in like June, July, August in the summer months. So the one year they, they electroshocked a bunch of like 18 to 20 inch wild browns. And, and this was a brand new stream that they were looking to classify. So they, they tried to shock it during the same time frame the next year. So they went back excited to find all these big wild browns again. And throughout the same sex section of stream, there was nothing like we were stunned you know, what we found were a couple little brookies, a couple little browns, or like nine-inch browns. And, uh, you know, we're puzzled. Like, what the heck happened to them? And um, we thought, well, the biologist was like, okay, we're going to, this time we're going to go uh, another 400 yards up this little, this little creek. And it was getting smaller and smaller. And the next thing you know, all the big browns started showing up again. You know, they had moved five, 600 yards up the stream. So, you know, they, they move around a lot. A lot depends um, on the conditions. You know, they're not going to be the same every year, not going to be the same every day. I've seen fish move, you know, within 24 hours uh, to be half a mile away. So, you know, the fish move around a lot more than people realize. And I think that's one of the things that I learned from watching biologists uh, electroshock streams. That's pretty cool. I know it's definitely that way with, uh, with steelhead where, you know, you'll hammer fish one day in a hole. You'll go back there two days later and we're like, all right, we're going to go straight to that spot again. And you get there and it's like, where did all the fish go? Like there's well, just, yeah, you know what? It creeps you up because you hear some people when the, when the steelhead are just starting to come in. Right. And you see them on Facebook and all these other places and they're like, Hey, is there, are there any fish up near the pool under I-79 yet? You know, it's like, well, you know, yeah, that's how many miles, but they're going to get there in one night. You know, once they come in, they're coming in a lot of times. Like it, they don't, they're not slowly working their way up. Like a trout will go, you know, eight, 10 miles or more in a single day when, when they're migrating like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty awesome. Um, with uh with stuff up by you i know whenever we've talked before you wanted to go up that way um and like you just said too because it's an area where you did a lot of your stuff outdoors and everything um what are some of the uh 
the um sorry i had to remind like like what are some of the areas you're going and fishing and everything like what are some of the streams up there that are the more popular ones uh well first fork of cinnamon creek is right in my backyard basically uh, it's just a few miles down the road uh that's the big one <clears throat> and it's a tremendous stream and I, that's actually one of the stream guides that we mentioned that are that i wrote about they can find that on my website but a book about first fork um uh, it's a tremendous fishery a lot of lot of wild trout in the upper upper half of it, I would say. It's also one of the Keystone Select streams that receives the, you know, the bigger, the larger stocked fish throughout the delayed harvest section. Um, to the east of here, there's Pine Creek, Big Pine. Uh, I'm closer to the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon, so uh, fishing down through the canyon is really awesome. Pine Creek is a lovely stream. Um, Allegheny River. This is the, oddly enough, this is the headwaters of the Allegheny, and uh, I'm not too far from where you can basically jump over the Allegheny River. It's only you know a foot wide, which is blew my mind the first time I saw it. You know, after growing up not far from Pittsburgh, and you picture the Allegheny River as this you know mighty water, and uh, here we are, you know, several hundred miles upriver at its origins, and it's so small that you can jump over it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, there isn't there something where you can actually go to where it actually comes out of the ground as like a spring, and yeah. there's there's like a marker in the ground where like this is the actual very start of the Allegheny River, and it's in like a middle of a field or something. Yeah, yep. There's a there's a placard there right off of 49, I believe it is 49. But uh, yeah, there's a a big marker there that says you know just up this. On the other side of this meadow begins the Allegheny River. And I guess it's one of the longest contiguous streams in the country, um, you know, where it's it's not created by other streams joining. You know what I mean? Like okay. it comes out of the ground as the Allegheny River and it ends as the Allegheny River. Like there's no two, two different streams that combine to form the Allegheny River. So I thought that was pretty cool too. Yeah. Sounds like uh Nick, you and I might have to make a little venture up north somewhere and go do some fishing. Sounds like it. Yeah. You want to take take the kayaks and get in the meadow and just like yeah, yeah, yeah. push in a foot of water until you get to the big yeah. river. Like I did it. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. I mean, we'll just like sink the drives in the mud like they do with uh Whenever bass sure. boats get in the real skinny water and they just pull the prop up as high as they can and just rip through stuff. Yeah, I think we'll we'll be fine. Totally fine. I know we'll make it happen. Well, you might be able to drift it now. So <laughs> we had so much snow that all melted and uh, those rivers are ripping right now. So, yeah. How's your chance? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I'm going to have to go load the kayak up and off off to uh Potter County, I go. Let me know how that goes for you. Yeah. Uh, actually, <laughs> on a total tangent, um, I actually am looking to find a river river kayak. So need something for the for the streams or the smaller stuff where we can't take our big big old God, boats. God forbid there's a week where you don't have to spend a bunch of money on something fishing related. <laughs> ah, man, <laughs> shut up. It's been I've been doing really, really well lately. I'm working some overtime tomorrow, so... There you go. Look at that. I came back to work for one rotation. I'm already picking up overtime. So how about that? Shows my, my incredible. You got to make that money for all that. 
my work <laughs> ethic. Money you lost from not working for months. Hey, babies aren't cheap, man. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't lose money while I was working. I was getting paid that whole time, son. Um, you weren't getting paid overtime. Yeah, well, I opted out of overtime back in like July because I said I was done with it. But I want to buy stuff, so I need overtime now. Sure. Uh, so, Ralph, what is, um, what is dark sky is going to all encompass like or i know obviously it's the the tying and the the selling for your flies and everything um what else is it going to be for you uh well the blog is going to continue of course um you know just basically highlighting different destinations across the state and probably expanding more into the new york i'm not far from new york here so i'm really great fishing up here um, but always an emphasis on Pennsylvania and then, uh, working on getting my guy's license. So I might be uh, doing some guided fly fishing trips. Um, I'd like to do some more video. Uh, I used to do some video, but kind of got away from it, but I'll probably start doing more of that again. And then, uh, you know, just more book projects, um, bigger videos. I have a couple huge projects in mind that I'm working on. So, but other than that, uh, you know, just to, to keep doing what I'm doing and getting, trying to get better at it. Um, I, you said about video and this was something I had in my head for you. Um, from like way back when, and I remembered it today because of talking about having you come on is, I know you have uh, some fingers within like social media and everything. I mean, you advertise on uh, on Facebook and stuff. Um, and Nick is definitely more on the the fly tying side than what I am. Uh, fly tying is actually something I would like to get into a little bit more for this year. Um, we're talking about uh, we're going to be finishing our basement. And I'm going to have a bar down there, but like there's some dead space that's going to be off the side of the bar where I'm like, you know what? I could probably put like a nice little fly tying station in like this little corner and everything. But I follow a few like fly fishing and trout fishing pages on Instagram. And one of the things I always find myself doing is watching them tie flies. Like I just get mesmerized. Like they just set up a GoPro or something like put it at their vice and they go through the process of tying things. And I just always like, I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, that's so cool. And like some of the stuff that guys make, like I was watching one yesterday, I think of, uh, he was making these like articulated streamers. And I was just like, man, like that's so awesome. Like it looks so damn cool whenever they, you know, start with a bare hook in the vice. And next thing you know, it's this beautiful, you know, multicolored articulated streamer. It was just, it's pretty awesome. So especially when they're like sculpting deer hair and things like that. Like, yeah. I don't do that. I don't get into that stuff, but yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. <clears throat> so I watch a lot of that stuff too. Yeah. Um. So one of the, one of the things for, for me, for the podcast this year was definitely wanting to try to like grow it a little bit. Um, and it's made me very much think about getting on TikTok and like creating a page for, for it. And for like my outdoor page I have on Instagram and everything. And, but I just know from listening to other podcasts and they say about how, you know, immensely popular 
that platform is right now for them. Or I was like, man, if Ralph decided to like dive into something like that, like he'd have millions of views probably on him, like tying flies and everything. If he, you know, decided uh, to try to mess around with that and stuff. <laughs> well, that would be nice. I wouldn't complain about that, but you know, like anything, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of consistency. You know, you can't just, I'm not, I, I'm not really one to just dabble in it. Like, if I do something, I get really into it. And Nick, uh, Nick and I have no idea about that at all. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're doing a podcast. So yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's the same thing, you know. Like so, in in like any any type of thing that you're trying to grow, whether it's business or or whatever, it's just the consistency, you know, and uh, just keep producing and getting better at what you're doing. And, and your quality goes up and your your people keep coming back to watch you. But um, yeah, there's lots of different avenues to explore. I'm not ruling out anything. Yeah. Um, video, you said about it. So I run a GoPro every single time I go out fishing. And I've made some videos and threw them up on YouTube and everything. And I enjoy doing it. And now it seems like more so I just get the the clips of things and, you know, make reels on Instagram and that sort of stuff, which is, is fun to do. Um, but same thing that I would like to do a little bit more of that and actually like making better videos on YouTube and stuff. But eh, man, like that's a lot of work. Like, I, I think people maybe realize it, but at the same time, maybe don't like for me to go through and put a, 15 minute video together like i don't have a great computer in regards to you know how fast it is and like processing and that sort of stuff like i actually have to compress my videos down so the playback is smooth so i can actually do all the editing like i will spend you know just plain sitting in the front of the computer and editing it might be a few hours but then on top of that compressing it and stuff like it might take anywhere between like eight to 12 hours for me to make a 15 minute video to put on YouTube. Like it's, it's a lot of work to do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's not uncommon. Um, years ago, I used to co-host a TV show on the sportsman channel, uh, called Pennsylvania Backcountry, And, uh, we had three seasons on there and we just put an incredible amount of time into filming and, you know, gathering footage and, the editing process was was long, but you know, my friend has a, a video production company, so he was he he kind of did did all of that. But you know, every once in a while, I was going in there to help him with that. But um, you're right; it's it people don't see how much post production there is, you know, and it takes a lot of hours to create something that looks like it was easy. Yeah, and I mean, it's not. I mean, the stuff that I do is you know, nothing even really that special. Like I'll throw some transitions in between, you know, from the last like catch and release I had to like my next cast and that sort of stuff. And um, what I tend to f unfortunately find myself not doing is not talking. Like 
I'll like go back through and watch videos and it's literally 30 minutes of nothing but me casting. And I don't say a single word. It's like, okay, this is boring as hell. Like I need to, if I want to do this, like I really need to pay attention and, uh, and try to focus on like talking about things and explaining things and like, you know, doing, doing something to make this actually worth watching because, you know, unless you're really wanting to nerd out, like people just don't have the the attention span to to watch a lot of that stuff. So true. Yep. Um. So back up real quick. So what was your what was the uh, the series on the Sportsman's Channel? What was that about? Uh, it was called Pennsylvania Backcountry, and um, my friend Mark he owns Hoffer's Video Productions. Uh, he kind of spearheaded all that and and got us on there for years they did a tv uh the same tv show on the local uh networks in butler county and uh, allegheny county but um you know we moved to the sportsman channel for three seasons it was just as the sportsman channel was was getting started and we basically just featured all things pennsylvania um everything from you know local uh, bow makers to uh, rattlesnake hunting in the mountains to trout fishing, uh, various streams in Pennsylvania hunting. You know, deer. It was it was all local stuff, and uh, you know it was fun to do, but it was a heck of a lot of work for just a couple guys. You know, there were three of us involved, and uh, a production that big is you know was quickly overwhelming. So. Yeah. Yeah you know, not, not pursuing it after a while. That's a, that's a group of idiots that I have no idea what they, what they have in their head whenever they decide they're going to go diving into rattlesnake dens and pulling them out of there. That's, that's, <laughs> that stuff is beyond me. That's that, those are the no ropes. I want nothing to do with them at all. It was pretty awesome though. Like that was, those were some of my first experiences encountering, you know, rattlesnakes up on the mountain. And, uh, Every now and then, even up here, I, I, I come across one fishing, especially over around Pine Creek or Kettle Creek. Um, there's a lot of snakes around here, but uh, yeah, they're pretty pretty amazing critters. I mean, just when you look at something, you think like, you're, you could kill me, <laughs> but you're beautiful. <laughs> you know? Hey, uh, Nick, I don't want to go fishing up north anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely don't want to go down south to some of these saltwater areas I have in mind either then. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up you know, central and west Texas. Shit, those areas are chock full of plenty of rattlesnakes. I remember going hunting a couple times with my dad, and you'd see him on the side of the road. And this was, this was not uncommon back in those days. You'd see him. He would just stop in the middle of the damn highway grab a shotgun and just shoot them <laughs> like, and just leave them there because <laughs> they're, they were a damn nuisance. You just, you know, like when you're hunting down there, you know, certain areas, a lot of people you're wearing, you're wearing guards, you know, like leg guards that protect against bites and stuff like that, or boots that specifically protect against them. Um, not that you're going to just step right on them, because, you know, that's what they have a rattle for. They won't hurt you. But I didn't realize there was actual rattlesnakes up north. I thought it was mostly like Copperhead country. No, anything else. They're, no, they're up is, there. Yeah. 
this is the home of a couple of really big rattlesnake roundups. Um, yeah. Down at Cinema Honing every June, early June. And I think uh, there's one in Cross Fork. And then there's also one over in Morris, you know, and they're all within, you know, an hour of here. But, um, yeah, there are, there are a lot of snakes uh, once you get north of 80, especially throughout the, you know, central part north of 80. Um, yeah, Greg, you were talking about fly fishing for redfish, some of these areas back home. Texas will take you to, you got to worry about rattlesnakes and gators. So yeah. <laughs> if you, you want to get into some things that they can make you have a really bad day, then <laughs> I can show you some areas. But, yeah. like, you know, just like anything else, you know, you just got to keep your wits about you. You know, and uh, there's certain, like, down there, there's certain times of year you just have to be more careful, whether it's snakes or, like, gators. You know, they breed a certain time of year. So mama gator is going to be watching out for her young certain times of year. Other times... They'll see you, you'll see them, and they'll bolt. They'll get away from you. But, you know, there's a couple months, I think, in the late spring where you kind of – then you need to go the other way because they're not going to leave their area because that's where their nest is. Yeah. You know, it's just shit you learn about, you know. And But the amount of people I know who have been bitten by a snake or bit by an alligator are, like, pretty much zero. And I know a lot of guys who – do the sportsman life down there. So it's, it's not something to, you know, consume your life about, especially it's just different than what you're used to up here. Yeah. We have um, my good buddy. Uh, he had his in-laws have a camp up in Medix run and um, his father-in-law, they killed one out from underneath his shed that was like 46 inches long or something. And it was the size of a softball almost the entire way through its body, like a big golden, uh, like rattler. Like that's a big, that's a big snake. If it's that wide for sure. Yeah. Well, that's what the, like the, the timber rattlers get that way. Don't they Ralph? Like they're more, they're not yeah. long. They're thick. Like they're heavy. Yeah. Your big, your big males, um, will be usually like 42 to 50 inches. And then your females will be slightly smaller, but um, yeah, if they get they get pretty thick throughout the the middle there too. Yeah, yeah, and is... it's deceptive because they can really. Uh, I came across one not too long ago when I was hunting in the early fall, and uh, I mean he was so blended in against a, a a little log, you know, almost like they collapse their body as they're like waiting there for prey to come by, and then once I you know, poked them like he just got huge all of a sudden. I was like, whoa, I didn't realize you were that big. I'd let you sleep. Like it was just, uh, yeah, they, they can, they can fool you. You know, they, they have some good size to them. So yeah, rattlesnakes are, are something that at least you can get that fair warning. Uh, you hear them and everything. And even like you said, Ralph, you poke that one and it got a lot bigger, but if it was rattling out, you knew it was there like copperheads and stuff on the other hand i that's something i don't want to get involved with and i thought about doing like wet waiting up in like red bank and like going for smallmouth up there but i've heard and people have said that like they've seen them in that stream i don't know whether that's true or not but it's like i don't want to be waiting in the stream if there's a chance there's copperheads around you just get out of their way i'll go with you it'll be all right <laughs> i promise yeah i don't know about you that you got a rod like they get close to you 
pop him with the end of your rod. That's what it's there for. You got you got 10 feet, 9, 10 feet, 11 feet, maybe, depending on your rod, between you and that snake. It's okay. I, the fish is worth it, then let's do it. I, I think I'd still probably pass on that one. Um, so off of off of the rattlesnake talk, you with um you said you were tying whenever you were a teenager and uh supplying local shops and everything. What made you transition into, you know what, I'm just gonna do this for myself and uh you know, I'm gonna I'm not gonna supply anyone, or maybe you do still supply stuff. I'm I'm not actually sure, but if you just you know are your own thing, or you know that whole whole part of it. Oh uh, well, for years, um, you know, once I got to like graduating high school, I discovered you know a lot of things beyond fly tying, and I kind of got away from fly tying for a while. Um, I just love you know, being out in the woods and on the water so much, I just really didn't have time to tie as much as I really wanted to. Uh, so I started scaling back that a little bit and then I kind of got away from it altogether for a period of years because I didn't really have the right place to do it after a while. And, um, you know, you just other things in life become, you know, take kind of take precedence. So about, Three years ago, uh, my wife found this really cool desk on on Marketplace, and we ended up buying it. And it ended up being pretty much the perfect fly tying desk. And uh, I now had an office then, where in our house that we had in Butler there, where you know I could set it up and I I could just you know go pull out all of my fly tying stuff again and kind of rediscover it. And uh, that's exactly what I did and um, found that I just really enjoyed it. And it was a great stress reliever for me. Um, it was just a lot of fun to sit there and listen to some tunes and tie flies and have my dog sleeping at my feet. And, you know, the baby uh, was, was it right in the other room there. And it was just, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. And I just found out really, again, how much I loved doing it. And the, the, you know, kind of selling a few flies was really just a way to, to get money to buy more materials, because it is, it is a dark hole, my friend. Have you ever? Oh, I, I, I'm getting into that hole, so I get. <laughs> I've, really I've actually. Yes. I started doing it, I guess, about a year ago, and I spent. A, it's very easy to walk in. And then walk walk into a fly shop and walk out with a very small bag, <laughs> and then it costs you like well over a hundred dollars. For sure. Um, and you're like, this is what I just I, I just did it the other day, just getting a few things, you know. Like, um, as I primarily have been, I've kind of got into like the whole Euro nymphing thing in the last I don't know nine ten months. Yeah. So I've pretty much been focusing on like jig style nymphs with tungsten beads. Tungsten ain't cheap. So like I found a couple places that I can find some beads for cheaper. <laughs> Excuse me. But I've started like narrowing my focus when I first started tying. I was like, that looks cool. I want to tie that. And then I have to go buy like five new materials. So now I'm just into like, I don't know, maybe 
six to eight flies that kind of will do it all for me for the most part. There's a couple outliers I tie, but like these are my solid go-tos and I just try to keep at that because it keeps me from like spending way too much on material that I'll never freaking use. I'll never use, like if I say I want to just tie one particular weird, cool fly and then I not and I ended up not using it, then that material is just here forever because it's enough to tie you know a couple hundred flies with which i may never do if if not more right oh yeah and that's where that's where most of the the money went to was just buying more hooks and more beads and more you know feathers and i mean some of those hackles you know the the saddle hackles are a good dry fly hackle you know oh yeah 100 bucks or 150 bucks is nothing oh yeah without a doubt yeah and that's why that's why i do not I, I've tied a few, but I don't tie dries because yeah. most of what I tie doesn't really need any hackle. I have a small amount of hackle and then some like CDC to do stuff with if I need to, but like I don't need much more than that. Like I can do a lot with with kind of some minimal materials, you know, that's how I'm kind of trying to keep it. And then like if I want some some cool dries or something like that, I'll buy them. Like, that's just how I kind of, that's how I've been approaching it the last couple of months. Cause I was just spinning a ton. It's like, I'll never go through this material. Like to the point where I was looking at like the full hackles, you know, like the whole, like a, like a, like a whole cape or something like that. I was like, Oh man, like you got to tie a lot to make it worth it. And you got to tie a lot of, whatever flies you're going to tie with that thing. And then like not every fly uses that particular material. Exactly. I have yeah. an alarming amount of stuff. It just, I'm sure you do. So, yeah, cause it was so, just, it was so much fun, you know, so, so follow up. What, what's your favorite fly to tie? If you had to pick one. Oh, that's uh favorite fly to tie. Um, Probably just the basic hair's ear nymph. I mean, it's so simple, but you can really make them look buggy, you know. And um, yeah, I can rip through those pretty quick. It's always sure. satisfying to know that you can do them quickly, and uh, they 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 always turn out nice. And I I have not been tying as much lately. I just the other day I actually sat down for a few hours and tied. Started trying to fill my box back up, but I'm kind of like the guy who the night before I'm going fishing will tie like a dozen or so flies, you know, think I'm going to need. And then, you know, and I always have some in there too, but because of that, I've kind of fallen back to like easier things. Like I'm doing a lot of like Frenchies. I'm doing a lot of like, you know, waltz and sexy waltz, you know, like those kind of things where they're real simple, quick and dirty ties, but like they produce, you know, so yeah. kind of, kind of like falling back in a, into that stuff. Then, then some, things that take maybe like eight or 10 materials. Like if I can keep it to like four or five basic materials, yeah. that's great. That's what I want to do. I caught some, I mean, uh, I caught it, a steelhead or two last year on a, some sexy waltz that I had from Ralph actually. Yeah. They're, they're super quick for me to tie, you know, those, and I've started tying some protagons um, because I can make those other than just, you know, adding the resin on there, like the tying is easy. Some of them you put a tail on. There's one that I do that's like a fake quill where you just use thread. And then I just use like a, 
a marker to like put a little black on the like olive thread and then I wrap it loosely around it and it's like you know gives that quill effect to it you know and then you you put a little UV resin on it you're you're done you know if you want to put a hot spot you can but like those like things like that are real simple they get down um and I've caught quite a few fish on them thank you you um we we had a brief conversation about this and I don't know if you'll remember or not um it may have been after I got my space set up but you were talking about um we were talking about the clarion and the clarion having some big wild brown trout in it and uh we were talking about swinging like big streamers for those and i was showing you my fly box like some of the like two hook like articulated ones and i was like man i have no idea what these things are for and you're like yeah go to the clarion you'll catch wild brown trout with those things mm-hmm. so um you what is um do you have a, a favorite uh i don't want to say like set up the fish or I, know, I was gonna ask a very similar question greg which yeah was like, like what kind of fly what's your what's your go-to you like to throw dries you like to indicator nymph streamers what, what's your favorite like that's kind of it was kind of tying into what i was going to ask anyway yeah okay yeah uh it really it really changes a lot um i i tend to do one thing for a while and then i'll change it up um for the longest time i was just doing like a the tight line nymphing high sticking you know not not the euro nymphing um then i kind of went to an indicator for a while I was just like, yeah, use this for a while and figure it out. And then it went to, you know, the Euro nymphing and then, you know, so on and so forth, just kind of bopping around, you know, depending on what I felt like doing. Um, but flies, I mean, my, it, it's so odd. Like I tie these, you know, dozens and dozens of different styles of flies, but me personally, I only use a couple, um, and it seems to vary from year to year. Like one year I was really into the Frenchies and I thought, you know, if I can, if there's a fish in there, I can catch it on a Frenchie. And I was usually right because it was, you know, there's this, I believe in like these confidence flies where, you know, that if, if you want to catch a fish and in anywhere you put this fly on and nine times out of 10, that one's going to do it for you. But like last year, it was more of the, the sexy walls and variations of the sexy wall and i don't think i used a frenchie at all last year which is weird because i used nothing but frenchies the year before so it's funny because i almost did almost the exact same thing i think it was my first year really getting into fly fishing with greg there was one day on the stream that i was like i caught like 20 plus on like just frenchies and i just kept using them like every time i went out i kept using them and then all of a sudden they just stopped and then I started using more of, you know, just, it's just a hair's ear variant versus a pheasant tail variant, you right. know, use, use the hair's ear variant and they were working. And like, you know, the, the cool thing I like about tying is like, when you first get into it, you get these recipes, you go online and people are like, well, this is how you do it, but you can just tie it 
you know, it's the same basic concept, but you can just add whatever the hell you want. You want a different thread collar, do a different thread crawler. You want to, you know, put a little different color tinsel or some weird shit on there. You can do that and throw a little CDC on it. And then it's something different and you can just do whatever you want and they still catch fish, you know, yeah. but that's, that's what I like. You have a little, you have a little creativity, you know, there's, there's your basic patterns, but like you can be as creative as, as you want or, as simple as you want and they'll still most of the time catch fish because I don't think the difference between most like waltz and sexy waltz they very rarely probably have that much determination whether the fish is going to take it or not you know but maybe sometimes but like it's it's the fun of it that, that's what I like about uh about tying and getting into it that and like okay I just caught a fish on something I created which is kind of kind of cool too absolutely and I think as uh as humans, we are designed to overthink things, of course. Yeah. And, you know, we give the trout a lot more credit than than what they maybe deserve because they're operating on such a primal instinct that it's really just, you know, if it looks like food, a lot of times it doesn't really even have to match anything in particular because if you, every time, well, not every time, a lot for a, one season, for instance, I decided that I was going to carry around a seine with me and, um, same the stream and see what kind of bugs were in there. Right. And uh, I mean, I, you would come, I would come up with, you know, eight or 10 different species of insects in the, in the same every time. And these are all things that the trout are feeding on, you know, and you pump their stomach or whatever, and you find three or four different types of bugs that they've been feeding on just recently. And yeah, there are times when they can key on, certain insects but most of the time they're foraging and they're just looking for something that looks like food sometimes and, it's about visibility too you know yeah. if off collar and things like that you know exactly versus yeah. the clear stream you know where you want something a little more natural but like you can lump so many flies into like two or three very broad categories and they'll all kind of work the same as long as you kind of know when to use them and then size sometimes but like as you said there's different size of bugs you know um that the lead which kind of leads to another question because of my fly tying experience what is the smallest fly you will tie a 22 Uh, i won't i won't even i don't even think i can get above an 18 anymore like you know (laughs) I, i have some 20 and 22 hooks and i was trying to tie some size 20 midges the other day with like, I don't know what they were, like 1.4 millimeter beads or something like that. And just trying to get the damn bead on the hook. And I, I was like, no, I'm, I'm done. This is something I'm going to buy. I'm going to go out. So if, you, if you're selling some midges, I'm going to place an order because I need some and I ain't going to tie them. That's it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> they're, they're not fun to tie. No. They're not fun at all. And I, I usually just do if someone you know emails me and I don't offer them in, in this in the online store or anything like that. But um, yeah, it's it's something yeah. that's custom. And there's a difference. Like sometimes I, maybe that's where I gravitate to it too. Is um, some of those jig hooks have just a little wider berth on them, so you can get that you can get those beads around a little easier than like some of the smaller curved hooks for me at least, like the size twenty curved hooks versus like a size 18 jig hook is like a world of difference even though it's like one size up you know 
Um, you guys were talking about materials and everything. And uh, my one buddy that um, I still had fish with a lot and everything, he was talking about he wanted to um, – he ties a fair amount and everything, but a lot of like egg patterns and that sort of stuff, because that's what we pretty much catch the majority of our steelhead on, you know, egg sucker spawn, that sort of thing. Um, he wanted to tie some copper Johns and he was like, I looked at the list of product I needed to tie one copper John. And he was like, no way. Like it's like 11 separate items to tie one fly. He's like, I am not buying all that shit to tie like a half dozen copper Johns. He's like, it's not worth it. If you're buying all that for copper Johns, then you already have like eight or nine of the materials for like a lot of other very common flies. So you kind of have to get in that mindset of, Okay, what can I use this for? That's you know, and, and go from that like copper, just copper wire you could use to wrap a pheasant tail, you know, like things of that nature. Like you're you're using it for for different flies that are very common. But something like you should probably have in your fly box, kind of stuff, you know. And that's the way I've been looking at it. Like, okay, where where's the crossover? Like, if you're just tying one fly, you're screwed. If you're tying 30 flies, you're also screwed. But like you find that happy medium somewhere in the middle of, okay, I have very different flies, but some of these materials overlap, you know, and you, you yeah. look at it that way. It makes it, a, it makes it a lot easier, but it's, it's finding that happy medium, especially just getting started. Cause I, again, I wanted to type everything. Like I'd watch a lot of like, uh, fly fish food like lance egan and those guys tie stuff you know some of these pro uh nymphers and just like man oh man i want to tie that i want to tie that and then i just write a list down and go to the store and come back and like 200 dollars later you know <laughs> i had a bunch of different random flies on my fly box instead of thinking of like what works so i could have like six at all times with the same fly so in case i'm breaking off or, or whatever you know and then trying to start approaching it a little a little more rationally instead of just instinctively saying i want to tie that because it looks really cool uh i mean i think i think i could probably well no actually i'm going to ask ralph because this is i was going to say i'm going to speak for maybe all three of us here but would you rather have nothing but a day of dry fly uh fishing or would do you like the fact that you can fish all day and maybe go between like bouncing stuff off the bottom and catching stuff on top or you know what is what is like your ideal fly fishing day hmm. uh it's probably a combination i mean unfortunately with dry flies you don't hit hatches all the time you know, they're not always surface feeding. So, I mean, nymph fishing is going to be your most consistent producer. Um, but yeah, I always like when you can hit some sort of midday hatch or a morning or evening or something coming off and, you know, figuring out what they're eating. Um, you know, that's, that's really where more of the selectivity comes in on a trout when you're trying to match exactly what they're feeding on. Uh, that's a, that's a challenge at times. And, um, so, you know, it's probably a combination of things. Yeah. I, uh, Nick and I were just talking about this the other day whenever we were up uh, steelhead fishing, because as it got later in the day, we noticed that 
more and more were coming and breaking the surface. And like, you could tell they were feeding on something. Like it wasn't that they were just like getting antsy to move. Like they, they were coming up and so uh, like just barely breaching, but like they were definitely appeared to be feeding. So that's, I was like, man, I wonder if, you know, some type of like a merger or something would have been like a good thing to have that day. And like, just having it, you know, not, be on top or like not on the bottom, but like something in that middle water column or something that would have been there. But it made me think where it was like, I could only imagine if steel had actually like were big feeders on dry flies on top, like how much fun that would be watching these big, like 10, 11 pound fish come up and smash some sort of like, you know, caddis looking thing or something on top and just how awesome that would be. And also how many times I would miss fish because I would get so damn excited that I would see the surface break and I'd be trying to set a hook on a fly that wasn't even a fish's mouth. Oh, that's for real. Uh, years ago, I went to British Columbia fishing uh, the Horsefly River and it was all huge wild rainbows and uh, they were basically we were fishing dry flies just blind fishing there was no hatch coming off or anything but they were coming up for you know huge like chernobyl ants that were you know size two and four like just gigantic uh bugs and a lot of times you know you would watch them come off the bottom and come up and, and take it and with a big fly like that you you gotta let them take it under with them and chomp on it once you know like that my guide he was always telling me you know don't set the hook right away as soon as you see him come up and take the fly you got to say god save the queen and then set the hook <laughs> because it, it kind of gave them time to get down under the water and get the fly deeper in their mouth you know because it's such a big meal but yeah it was just it was so exciting you know watching them come up for it that uh yeah like you said it's you just basically pulling it right away from them before you even get a chance to hook them you know but it was it was really cool experience to catch, you know, 27, 20, 26, 27 inch rainbows on on dry flies. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's the same with uh with like bass fishing. Whenever you're throwing frog, like <laughs> if I'm if I'm throwing a frog, I always have in my head if I see that that you know boil of water come up underneath my frog and everything and you know they hit it, it's always like set the hook then you then you rip on them and and drive that hook in and everything so you just give yourself that little like three second like set the hook bam then you pin them so exactly yeah yeah but it's um i i mean personally for me one of whenever i really got into fly fishing uh fishing out the delayed harvest area out in buffalo and getting out there and just throwing like a griffith gnat and um catching them on that like on top water i mean i call it top water obviously it's my bass coming out on me but uh in like using dry flies and having them up in you know come up and feed on that it's probably like one of the coolest experiences i've ever had fishing up until that point in time in my life because it was just like you just see these like little you know i understand they're stock trout but they just come up and just that little like and they just grab it and go under and you're like that was that was so awesome. Like it was just super cool to, to see that happen. And whenever, you know, like Nick said earlier about, you know, having catching something that you tied yourself. Um, 
I had that with, I just tied like a simple ant with like foam and stuff. And I caught some fish out of the delayed harvest out there, um, throwing that around and just, you know, having it float down on the, on the surface and everything. Um, but yeah, that's, I would say for trout fishing for me, um, understandably that you have the most luck, like you said, probably fishing with an, not even with an indicator, but, um, uh, nymphing for them, but it still doesn't get any better than having them come up and hit dry flies on top of the water though. In my opinion, I got to get you guys up here on like first fork during a late May, uh, hatch of, you know, whether it's, uh, sulfurs or March Browns or something. Uh, and you know, there's a couple dozen trout rising in a pool and, uh, you know, you get that experience of just, you know, one after another, it's, it's unreal. Yeah. Our nearby streams, you don't see a whole lot of hatching. No, no. I, I, <laughs> I grew up fishing Buffalo Creek. You know, I only grew up yeah. 10 minutes from it and I fished it every day. And, uh, I can only name maybe a handful of times when I came across a hatch that was heavy enough to get the majority of the trout coming up to feed on the surface. I, since I've started, I can think of like one time in Western PA where I've had that happen and it was, um, it was out of near Polk. So I'm trying to think of a little Sandy Creek. Yeah. It was actually big Sandy. Sandy. We fished, I fished them both, but, uh, big Sandy, we, I stopped at like seven or eight different holes and one particular hole, they are surface feeding nowhere else all day. And so we just stayed there for a couple hours till we beat them up. Um, well, Little Sandy is a tremendous fly creek. Yeah, I've been there a couple times. I had that like hole under the trestle where there's some yep. of those bigger browns will sit. I know you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Caught some uh, browns, yeah. yeah, that's that's an interesting spot to fish because um sometimes you got to get deep, you know, and it's, yeah. it's hard to manage a big, long leader, you know, big, right. long strain of tippet to kind of get it down to them in that hole. Yeah. And then well, you're getting it back towards you, you know, that's, yeah. you know, you're not, you're, you're, you're stripping back towards you instead of like across the stream. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting spot for sure. It is. Yeah. Oil Creek too is a great, great fly Creek. Um, very, very prolific hatches. On Creek. Yeah, I went. I actually I went with a guide out in that area a couple of years ago because I was just kind of getting started. So it's like I want to hone my skills and and decided to go up there and do it. And I've since been back to uh, Little Sandy, um, but it was it was a nice nice area, you know, especially Little Sandy because it'll hold some of those wild browns in there. We were pretty much catching just it was just stockies and, and big Sandy. Yeah, it's I. I didn't do it, even though, like I said, Ralph and I talked about it where, you know, going up to uh, Clary and throwing big streamers on uh, on that stream to try to catch some uh, some wild browns and stuff. And I ran into a guy um, at a little local like farm pond right down my house. Nick knows which one I'm talking about. Um, and he was fly fishing the one day and I went back and got my fly rod and him and I just throwing like little, you know, nymph looking things we absolutely were smashing bluegill and like small bass and everything i mean it was so much fun i probably i probably had 50 to 60 bluegill in my hand that day um and it was just 
a blast, even on my five weight. Like it's just, I mean, it's, it's overpowered for them, but they still will rip line out of your hand without even thinking about it. Cause they swim so damn sideways and like all over the place in the water. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but he goes a lot of times and goes and fishes for uh, wild Brown. And I've seen some of his posts on Instagram and everything. And it's like, man, I need to get out someday with him and, and go do that. So that might have to be on the, uh, on the agenda for this year is to, um, to try to get some place and go and catch a, a big old Brown trout. There's plenty of places within maybe three hours from here that we can go, you know? Yeah. Little, little Jay as wild Browns, you know, there's, there's yeah. quite a few of them out there that I don't really fish, but also on my radar to kind of like go a little further outside of the hour and a half radius. We normally fish. Yeah. Um, those two kids that I, uh, I was fishing with up in Erie for steelhead a few weeks ago. Um, they fished, uh, the Junietta on their kayaks and dude, you should have seen some of the smallmouth they were pulling out of that, that river. Like I'm talking yeah. equivalent to Lake Erie size smallmouth. It was pretty impressive. Um, but we, what are we? We're like an hour and 40 in, um, Ralph, I, I had one question uh, that I wanted to ask you before we kind of get into wrapping things up. And you had said about um, you're working on getting your guide license, everything. What like what does that entail for you to to do? Like, what do you have to do to be able to be like a certified guide, I guess, for Pennsylvania? Uh, from what I understand, it's just taking your first aid and CPR classes and getting your certification there. And then uh, getting your, your liability insurance and uh, sending in your per for the permit. Um, I don't. There's no real test or anything like that. But um, yeah, it's really just that simple. Okay, I thought maybe it was going to be. I mean, Pennsylvania seems to always have like some sort of crazy things you have to do for. Yeah, that's you know yeah. random. Yeah, random things you have to get. I'm just trying to think like you know no. now for pheasant hunting you have to have your pheasant tag like stamps and everything where back in the day you never had to have all that stuff and everything so um nice well we finish this off with a little series of questions um and it's meant to be a little bit of a kind of rapid fire but we always seem to go on little tangents with this and everything um i'm gonna go ahead and let uh nick start us off with this all right, so first one, when you're driving to the stream, to the river, to the fishing hole, what you got playing on the radio? Probably Tom Petty. Okay. Answer. I got Sirius XM. My wife gets that for me every year for my birthday. She renews it, and it's pretty much stuck on Tom Petty radio. Now, now, does she do like what you're supposed to do with that? That you tell them that you're not going to renew it, and you fight with them for ten minutes on the phone, and oh, then you get it dude. for like absolutely. And you get it for like, <laughs> half price. Yeah, hard to say his wife yeah. pays for it. It's not his problem as long as he's got the <laughs> subscription. Not his problem. Yeah. Uh, the next question. What? Well, you maybe don't actually have one of these around you, which is hard to say. Uh, but whenever you were in the more populated areas, if you stopped at Sheets, whether you're on your way for fishing or just in general, what was your go-to order at Sheets? 
It, well, actually, we do have a Sheets raid in town here, so that oh. is one of the amenities that we have. Um, <laughs> so I would say it was a foot-long turkey sub with, uh, you know, maybe a couple strips of bacon on there and all the all the trimmings. Carved yeah. turkey or like regular-ass deli turkey? That's uh, regular-ass deli turkey is good for oh, me. I go, I go with the carved. Yeah. I don't know about well, you, Ralph. Yeah. <laughs> You came. Uh, you came from Bucky's though, so you you have to be more high end. Right, you're more, exactly. You're you're more high end, more falutin. Yeah, more, uh, yeah. Uh, very high falutin. <laughs> I don't but, make the money to afford that stuff. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question three. So some of these are like geared to bass dudes a little bit. This might be, but I think it's still can. It's still I said it could still apply. This. Yeah. So if you could take. Well, I wouldn't even say, we'll say this. If you could take one rod with one fly to the stream, what would it be? What would the rod and reel setup be? And what would the fly be? You can replenish that fly if you break off or whatever, but say you had one box and only contained one fly. Uh, Nine foot, six weight, fast action with a woolly bugger. Size yeah. eight, size ten. Fair enough. I'm kind of surprised by that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Woolly buggers, you know, they're so versatile. Um, you can strip them, you can dead drift them, you know, you can bounce them, whatever you want to do. Like, and they and they can catch almost anything too, whether you're fishing for trout, bass, or whatever. So I've caught plenty of bass on on black woolly buggers, olive woolly buggers, white ones. Um, for for longest time i i used nothing but woolly buggers i was really into the stripping streamers and stuff like that so um yeah that would be the one fly i think it's probably one of the best best that's ever been developed other than you know the pheasant tail and M. <laughs> but yeah huh okay uh what's your normal go-to Rod, this isn't a question. This is actually just kind of a, a piggyback off that. What's your normal like go to for uh, like if you're just going out for a day of trout fishing? What rod do you typically take with you? Uh, I got this um, TFO uh, Temple Fork Outdoors Drift Rod about three years ago, and it is adjustable in length from like nine to twelve feet, maybe thirteen feet. I can't remember, but it's got like six pieces, and you can interchange pieces without having to restring the line. Um, but it's a, an awesome Euronymph rod. It's an awesome um, tight lining rod. It can cast a dry fly, a country mile. Uh, but yeah, that's my, and it's a uh, three weight. So. Huh. I, just, I just got a new Euro rod that I have not had a chance to take out yet that I've been kind of chomping at the bed to try yeah. out. They can really cast a dry fly well. Wow. That's what I heard. I got the yeah. uh, those. Uh, I got a Diamondback uh, Ideal Nymph rod. So yeah, look, it's I. I really been wanting to use that, but obviously, you know, from the freeze to the, you know, <laughs> yeah. to what it is now is has not been great timing. Yeah, I. Uh, I that, that's actually really really interesting this how that that would uh how that would work and everything um so again 
I mean, this can apply for trout fishing, everything. I just don't know any of them. Uh, do you have a favorite fishing professional? And that doesn't mean like, uh, specific to, you know, the professional fishing aspect of like winning money, but even just, you know, someone that you like to follow on social media or YouTube or anything like that. Hmm. It doesn't even have to be that. Like fly fishing has got some old guys that everybody knows that, you know, been around. One of my favorite, one of my favorite people that I've met and actually had a chance to socialize with was Joe Humphrey. I was going to say, I, I, I don't know why. I just knew that was going to come. We're in Pennsylvania. So it's, it's hard yeah. not to say that guy's name, you know? I, yeah. I, I had the, a great opportunity to spend a day with him, actually a day and a half with him. Um, I wrote an, an article about him for American fly fishing. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Spent the day at his house and, you know, basically like it, it was amazing. Like the guy is super genuine. Um, well, he's definitely a legend. In the, oh my in the gosh. Sport, he, you know? He's one of the nicest guys ever. Like he just, uh, he's the real, real deal, you know, no, no ego, you know, being very confident in what he does and all but uh, just super genuine and, you know, within minutes made you feel like, you know, you were just his best friend. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But um, on YouTube, I mean, I follow that um, Scott, I can't remember his name. He does a lot of the, a lot of videos on um, the Juniata and Spring Creek and stuff. And then the Wooly Bug uh, guy, I can't remember his name, Mike Ivanko. Okay. Um, you know, those are two that I, I enjoy a lot. So I, I'll be honest. I don't know who any of those guys are. Um, I'm not you, apparently. You, a, you need to start researching Joe Humphreys. That guy's a, a legend in the sport. You don't know who that is. He's got like a documentary on like Amazon Prime or yeah. something. Yeah, like I was. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of the reasons I I interviewed him was right when that documentary "Live the Stream" it's called uh, came out, and it was it was being featured in the theater in Carlisle. So I, I stayed there for a couple of days and was at the, the grand opening. So the short story is he was the guy, he basically is the godfather of nymphing, tight lining for the most part. And he created the, like the fly fishing program at Penn state many years ago. And well, he just, took it over from George Hart. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He, yeah, but he just—he's yeah. been like the guy in the sport for a long time, and he's, he's an old guy now, you know. But yeah, he's like ninety-three, I think, or something. Yeah, he's just, yeah, he's he's taken the sport to to another level, and especially being in Pennsylvania, that's a name you should know. And it's you know not that not that it's a bad thing that you don't, but I think you'd you'd find it very interesting, Greg, if you. No, I, I, yeah, the little research and look up that live the stream documentary they was talking about because it is, it is highly interesting for what we do or what we like to do. Just you know, seeing a guy who's basically has done it his entire life, and then he does like a a big part in the conservation effort of you know certain streams in the state too. You know, I think he was there. Are certain parts of that documentary we was talking about were basically Spring Creek. And Central PA was destroyed. And, you know, he was kind of on the forefront of trying to bring that back and make it a fishable stream. Yeah, it was being polluted by Thompson Run. And uh, he helped to clean up Thompson Run, which then cleaned up the lower half of Spring Creek. Huh. 
Yeah, I'll definitely have to. You said live to stream is what it's called. Yeah, and actually, that the article that I wrote for American Fly Fishing is on my blog. Um, if you go down through there, you can read that and see. Oh, for sure. That's yeah. that will probably truly yeah, way nice. to do way to do your research on our guests. Hey, right? come on, Should've read man. that already. We're, we are not that professional that I should be doing research on the, the guests, okay? Like, he, says, he says we. <laughs> we. Uh, oh, man. Stop, stop right. giving me shit. The only, the only professional fly fisherman that I actually know because I used to watch like ESPN Outdoors when I was a kid was Flip Pallet from like the Saltwater Chronicles and stuff that was on uh, ESPN way back in the day, so... All right, here's our last uh, not-so-rapid-fire question. Your dream fishing vacation or fish to catch. You may have already done it, but if you could go anywhere in the world with a fly rod in hand, where are you going? Ooh, probably Alaska. I mean, there's just so much water up there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and so many different types of trout and salmon and all that but i think one of the biggest dream trips i want to do is that I'm, I'm hoping to do this year and that's just to go to montana and wyoming for like three weeks and just hit as many streams and rivers as i can in that time and uh you know just enjoy enjoy being around the west yeah, I, i've actually thought about going to montana for maybe like three days <laughs> i don't know airfare is pretty expensive you know but i'd yeah. love to take a long weekend at some point this spring or early summer and do something of that nature just to get away either that or just go back closer to home and, and fish for redfish instead of normal tackle which i've done since i was a ch child almost and then change it up to a fly rod and try to go out and fish for them but then i'd have to like learn how to like really cast and double haul and stuff i really don't know how to do because i don't need to right. on these streams here <laughs> yeah that's uh that'd be fun we're uh i think i may have said about you or not but um Alaska is on our radar for 2024 between Nick and I and some of his buddies, we might be taking off and going up there for like a seven or eight day trip. So that would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what we talked about. That's kind of a, a, a lifetime bucket list trip right there. So, yeah. and neither one of us are getting any younger. So especially me. <laughs> uh, well, that is going to kind of wrap things up for us. Ralph, where can everyone find you at? Sure. Um, the website is called Dark Skies Fly Fishing, and uh, it's just darkskiesflyfishing.com. Um, are you – I know you were on Instagram stuff too. Are you changing all your all your names over to that? or? Uh, yes. I have a, a Facebook page, and uh, it, everything has been transitioned over. So if they just do a search for dark skies fly fishing, it should come up. Okay. Awesome. Well, uh, we thank you very much for jumping on with us. I'm glad we were finally, you know, able to make it happen and everything. And, um, yeah, it'll, uh, we definitely need to get out on the stream together. I know we have talked about that and everything. And I mean, if you're maybe throwing an invite to come up and do some fishing up there, Nick and I might have to make a little jaunt, uh, up North and, and spend a day with you and, you can show us around uh, First Fork. So, you guys are welcome anytime. 
Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. So, all right, all that's going to do it for the uh, for the bastards tonight. You can find us on all the normal streaming platforms. Um, like, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. And uh, until next time, we'll see you. Goodbye.